Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the game industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to get your free pass to our next digital event coming December 8th, 9th, and 10th, where we'll have more great sessions you can participate in for free and inexpensive passes to our industry-leading digital business-to-business meeting system. This episode was originally recorded during the Meet to Match and Indie Game Business Summer Edition 2020 virtual conference. Any presentations that accompany this session will be linked below. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the sixth Indie Game Business and Meet to Match digital event, the fifth business to business one going back way back when to early 2019 and the first event that we've had with a selection of speakers all based on the uh, business marketing and licensing side of games. So no matter where you are watching us from, if you have a question for our guests for the next three days, we're going to be doing this. We have 30 sessions, 30 plus sessions and 50 plus speakers that are going to be here. And if you have questions for any of them, Pop them in the chat where you are. It'll show up on our screen and we'll get your question answered live. So there's that part of it. And we're going to have our Discord server. I'm pointing like you all can see it. The Our Discord server at discord.gg slash indie game business is live as well, where we'll have after talk sessions, there's AMA slots in there. And hey, if nothing else, there's 1,300, actually 1,400 industry professionals that you can network in there now. So anyway, without further ado, our first speaker of the conference is Jermaine Gioa from Play Life. Welcome, Jermaine. This is, and, and thank you for being up at 5, 6 a.m. your time to get this done. But Jermaine is a good friend of mine, and I will argue the hardest working person in the industry. If you are at a, a real conference event, assuming we ever go back to those, you will have to look fast because she is going to be everywhere running, introducing, meeting, and she doesn't slow down to, to sit or eat or anything else, I believe. So thank you. Nice to be here, Jay. So give us a, a real quick, Tell us about your career, you know, what you've done, and then we're going to jump straight into a bunch of these questions. Um, a career that has spanned uh, a few years, uh, but it started in the game industry in the 90s, and it started out really focused in marketing, but that grew into buying properties for game development across platforms, and then it evolved into those properties going across merchandise categories. And now I work with a variety of brand licensing partners, brands, as well as manufacturers and uh, game developers to either buy properties, but it's mostly about brand integration into technology and merchandise categories. Uh, and it's the best career you could have. I know, isn't it fun? I, lo I, I do love licensing. I will. I will admit that. So you've done this for a long time. Yeah. How has licensing changed in the last 20 years? 
Um, I think ultimately more and more people over, especially probably the last dec decade or so, certainly in the game space are seeing the relevance and the importance of the audience that a property brings to sales. And so I just think it's uh, more than anything else, it's uh, seeing the relative importance of licensing. Licensing has just grown uh, in terms of its elevated, its status. We're, it, it's not the bad thing that, you know, the ET game brings up or the Superman N64 game, all these horror stories that we heard from, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago with licensing. Now it's a good thing, right? Oh, I think it's, I think ultimately it's always been a really good thing. It's just that there was a time where the only, the most important part that a license could bring with it was its audience. And ultimately less importance was placed sometimes on the, the content, the development of the technology. Now all of it's very important. The, the property itself, what it brings, where it is. Consumers want what they love wherever they want it, when they want it. And so I do think ultimately all of it matters. So if I'm a developer or a publisher and I'm looking to, you know, make my game more visible or, or look into this licensing world in general, what should, you know, why should we look to, to license an IP, you know, aside from, you know, an audience aspect? I mean, that's a huge part of it, but, you know, why else should we look to license an IP? Um, I think for an awful lot of game developers, it should really start with passion first. It should start with uh, their love of the property as combined with what they want to make. So, you know, a, a, a game developer, one game developer that I work with that is just one of the most renowned racing uh, game developers on the planet, doesn't necessarily look to an IP that isn't a premier racing uh, a piece of content or IP. So ultimately, I think it's got to start with passion first, and then it's got to start with the audience that um, that the IP can bring and where the target demo is for the engine. Um, it, it sort of all flows together. So when I'm going out and, and looking for an IP, what are some of the things that I need to to look for, to, to be aware of, you know, to make them stand out? What, what do I need to look for in that, in that property? Um, I, I think there's, you know, a, a range of product that you, of, of uh, thinking that you need to look for when you look for an IP. It starts with, you know, target demographic, who you're trying to reach. Again, passion for the content altogether. But it's more and more these days a 360 approach. The strongest IPs in my mind are the ones that have a good social media reach. They talk to their consumers. I think in just terms of trends these days, I think they're inclusive, they're responsible. I think it's just an awful lot of the IPs, certainly that many of the developers and or vice versa, uh, many of the uh, just manufacturers are looking for st 
strong audience uh, and being on trend, being kind of, they're, they're likely looking for a millennial audience and a relevance and sustainability, um, good feature sets for a property these days, not to mention a large passionate audience. <laughs> Not, not to mention all those hundreds of thousands of dollars you can save on user acquisition because you're tapping, tapping into a, a passionate group. So obviously there's, there's two sides to every deal. There's the IP itself. And then there are the people that you're working with that manage that IP that, that are going to be your partners on this long road. It, it's not a fire and forget situation here. You know, what are the signs that the group that you're looking to work with is a good group to work with and doesn't just want, you know, give me the money and, and I'm going to get out of the way? Oh, I think that is such a great uh, question, Jay, because it is so important to find real partners, people that want what's best for both sides of the equation. And on the licensor side, they really do want to see um, technologists or developers or manufacturers, licensees, really invested and knowledgeable about their brand. And again, bring that level. They want to see quality product made. And on the manufacturer or licensee side, developer side, the, the licensor as well, or the, they need to approve quickly. They need to be responsive and fast. They need to hopefully bring good quality assets to the table that can inspire art and development work. It really is a, a mutually beneficial arrangement ultimately. And when it works and it's relevant to large consumer audiences around the world, depending on the platform, it is a very monetizable and beautiful thing. It does. And you touched on one thing there, the approval process. And that is absolutely so important when we're dealing with with the games, because you have to keep in mind if you're if your contract says you have 30 days, they have 30 days to approve. And then whoever is paying you to make this is going to take 30 days to pay you. You're looking at a two month swing sometimes if you don't have a group that can turn around things quickly, you know? So, you know, those are the good signs. What are the red flags? You know, when I'm talking to either an agency or directly to an IP, you know, and we're going through that, you know, feeling out phase, what are some of the things that you've seen pop up where you're like, whoa, that, that's not going to be good? Um, I think uh, there are, there can be a number of red flags and you kind of have to, you know, uh, be in the moment to necessarily or be through the process. The contract phase, uh, you know, devil in the details, that can obviously be a sign. When contract negotiations and when, um, when a licensor, as example, is really interested in big and hefty uh, advances and guarantees, they're less interested in sort of the long term, many developers, especially in this economic environment, are really interested in putting lots of their monies into the development itself, into the product, and less 
forecasting with questions about what retailers are going to be out there. How am I going to sell my product? Is it mostly e-commerce these days? And um, ultimately, I do think if you can already sense that there is much more about, I want it all up front, that's a little bit of a red flag and, um, and can be a sign of the type of relationship going forward. Um, I think these times have really highlighted understanding on both sides and, um, and the ability to just be there for both sides and adapt to, uh, nobody has a crystal ball, but adapting to these, these economic situations. It's been a tough one. And I think that's a big, good sign of what kind of a relationship you've got. Uh, with your licensor, as well as a licensor with its licensee. The, uh, we, we've talked on the show before about, we, I had a, a licensor come to me several years ago. It wasn't that long ago. It, it was long enough that this would have, this is an issue. They had a lot of like 80s action movies. And, I mean, good properties that, you know, yeah, the movies are 20 some, 30 some, God, wait, no, 40 some years old. Holy God, I'm old. The, um, but it's, it's one of those things that they weren't like fantastic. And when we started talking about deal terms, they were just like, oh, well, I want, I mean, it was in the six figures up front and, you know, and then nothing on the back end. And, and that was, that was that red flag that we saw. And I was like, wait a minute, because I mean, you, you were SVP over at, I guess we call it the original THQ now. And, and that's a, that's the way deals were done, you know, in the nineties, even in the two thousands was, you know, these studios or Disney or whoever it was would get a big fat check up front. And now it's not that way anymore. Well, uh, needless to say, a lot of licensors would love to know what you think the business can be over a number of years. So there's a forecasting process. And ultimately, most licensing deals used to be a sizable percentage of a forecast over the term. And then that percentage translated into a total guarantee. Was it 50%? Was it 20% of the total forecast? And then that advance was 10 to, on average, say 25% of that. So there was a formula. Now it's really, oh my goodness, every deal is different. Every deal is different. There are some standards of royalty rates, certainly for particular categories. There are standard rates for t-shirts versus um, shoes versus, you know, so different categories of merchandise. Uh, but generally speaking, these days, there are an awful lot of licensors who are much more willing to take less of a guarantee up front and want a much bigger back end. So it's definitely, you're right, it's not a standard one size fits all anymore at all. So, I mean, in being general, without going into too gory, gory details, what are some of those standards for different platforms? Because there's a lot of things out there that developers and publishers may not be initially thinking, oh, wait, that's a that's a very good place to, to license our IP. And they may be used to just dealing with it on like the TV or the movie scale. So what are some of the other areas and, and what do those 
what do those rates usually look like? Um, well, I, I think uh, well, probably one of the most important, especially those new to licensing, should be aware of is really the definition of net sales. So, you know, again, everything uh, is dependent on what are the allowable um, deductions that you can take from the definition of what you pay a royalty based on. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, but when we're looking at what that percentage is, I mean, mm -hmm. is there a difference between, you know, licensing it into, like you said, t-shirts versus coffee mugs versus, you know, whatever else is out there? Or is it generally still, I mean, I've seen anything from five to 20%, you know? Uh, and that's exactly right, depending on the platform. The apparel industry is most often in that eight to 12% range. So depending on the strength of the license and the promise of the audience that they deliver, royalties can be lower or higher. A newer property doesn't command a 12 to 15% royalty, whereas an established, um, uh, long-standing brand that's got very large audiences that might bring television show or feature film launch or a large influencer and social media support effort behind it, that can command the higher end of the scale. And there are always as well uh, scaling that can be done in royalties, not to get too complex, but you can start at a low end of the scale and scale the royalty depending on number of products sold over time. So you can start at 5% uh, for a particular shoe category and scale up to 7% after arbitrarily a half a million units are sold. So um, on the game side, now you're seeing royalty rates not automatically starting certainly at the 10 and 12%. A lot of console rates will start lower um, six and seven percent and scale up. And of course, mobile rates that used to be on the higher side are also starting on the lower side with the promise of marketing support over time. So we all remember and we heard the rumors of, of the, um, the Kim Kardashian deal with glue. How big of a ripple or wrinkle did that throw into the industry and you know have we gotten past that i mean is it do these celebrities are they still looking for giant hunks of cash and percentages of the company or the game like we were like we saw um oh once again i think um uh the times have changed so many things. And there are, you know, some of the celebrities, some of the influencers that really do bring tens of millions of audience into the equation. And depending on what they are willing to do, I'm working currently with uh, a celebrity property that's not interested in committing to so many 
um, tweets on an ongoing basis and isn't willing to commit to necessarily a, a sustained support over time. Uh, they're they're much less interested in putting in the development time up front. The the that's changed. There's no more giving a portion of the company for the most part, unless somebody's just really interested. Lots of times, some of these companies want to just get a first game out there, and so they're more willing to be um, leaving something on the table uh, for a first time, proving their capability, and then it changes. But no, I don't think, uh, I, I really do think that these days, the developer, the licensee, and the brand holder, it's much more of a shared responsibility and shared weight on the effort of both sides to really reap um, the biggest back ends and potential revenues for partners. Hey, let me break in here for a second because we've got a couple of questions piling up. Mm -hmm. uh, here we go. This is a big one. I feel like when it comes to passion for games, especially in the indie side, passion and love for games exists. But when it comes to the business side, feels like people with passion and love for their game are reluctant towards learning that. I think licensing IP or marketing is part of that. How often do you deal with people who ignore the business side mostly? And is there something you suggest to them? And another second part is, does it create impact on them? A lot of questions, but it would be nice to know. And that's from Suhaib Riman on Facebook. Um, well, if I, if I understand the question correctly, and Jay, jump in. Um, <laughs> You're the expert, Jermaine. I'm just here. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Well, I'm, let's, let's answer the first part. How often do you deal with people who ignore the business side? Um, well, I don't know how the business side honestly can be ignored. Um, when you've got a, a passionate game developer who feels like love of the IP and passion for a particular um, engine is all that there is, but they're not willing to address the business side, they likely won't get the the partnership with the IP that is the business side of it and um, and believing that there is relevance to what they bring to the table. So I hope I'm answering the question, but I believe it's really got to be a very shared passion on both sides, passion for what the business brings to the table and approval processes and a legal process and and certainly uh, royalty income for what the property can bring. And that licensor as well has got to be most interested in what the developer and the engine and their passion for their property and their knowledge of their property and not just wanting to be slapped on a previous uh, game engine that doesn't take into account all that they are bringing to the table. Again, I think it's passion on both sides that makes for the strongest relationship. I hope that's answering the question. No, it, it, it is, but we do, we see so many people, it's like the example earlier, it's like they don't, they don't get it, they don't understand. And so they, they're just like, I want my money and I want to go away. But it's, it's come down to those of us on the video game side, much more in the last few years than, than before to, you know, educate a lot of these IP owners on 
the benefits. And now we're seeing them come to us, you know, and, and go, I want to have this game in, in XYZ. But it, it is something that you run into a lot is that they just, they don't get it. They, mm -hmm. they someone told them they need to be in a game, and, but they don't understand the, the benefit that comes from it. Well, and more and more retailers are kind of looking for a specific type of property. They're they're not they're looking less for something that's going to come and go very quickly. They're kind of looking for more stable these days, things that appeal to a broader audience, certainly things that appeal to a millennial. So I I do think it behooves everybody to realize too, there are a lot of properties out there. And uh, I'd, I'd be loath to turn off those interested in working with your property because I think more and more you've got some competition out there that can really mean, thank you so much. I'm going to go and work with these people over here that are a little bit more willing to, to work in this environment. All right. Let's, uh, let's ask the next uh, question from Christopher Lonnenbacher. And his question is, I'm working with an international IP. How do you manage the relationships with issues such as language and cultural barriers? Well, it definitely helps to be able to communicate without it. <laughs> uh, and, and talking is high up on the list. But these days, I think um, most game developers, certainly a lot of product merchandise licensees are more and more operating on a global basis. I think um, certainly um, whether you're working on a game that's gonna launch in English speaking countries, Europe, Russia these days, we're working on a few games that it matters that games are localized in certain languages and take in to account specific cultures. What works in the West doesn't necessarily work for all Chinese uh, cultures as well. So I do think that more and more you want a property to work truly globally. Very specific account has to be taken in for very specific territories. And you can very successfully as well, launch slowly over time. Begin with a property, see it work and do it well in specific territories, fewer territories, and then roll out over time, which I've seen work extremely well. Are you looking for a publisher for your game? Well, we have something special just for you. It's the most comprehensive listing of PC, console, and mobile publishers in the industry. Over 700 companies sorted by platform with links to their websites. You can get the list at www.powellgroupconsulting.com slash publisher dash list. And you can get it for free. Check it out. So, and, and I'll add to that one thing that you 
have to make sure of is that there's a clear understanding on, on all sides. And so it goes beyond just speaking the same language. It's like we worked on deals years ago where we had to explain to the developers in another country what a barn looked like in the US. And of course, all of us here in the US know it's like, I know exactly what a barn looks like. You know, it's red, it's kind of like stunted little silo looking thing, but they did barns where they lived didn't look like that. And so when we said we needed a barn, we got something and we're all looking at it going, that's not a barn. But, you know, we had to go out and, you know, literally take pictures and find pictures on the internet. I think this was early stages of the internet. It wasn't as easy as it was then. But the, uh, in another case, we were doing a game with a, a, took place in South Carolina in the South. So, you know, we said, okay, look, we need like an antebellum, you know, plantation house. They had no idea what that was, you know. And so we actually went out to a local historic site and took pictures inside and outside of this, this house that was like 200 years old. So they would have a frame of reference. It's like a lot of things when you're doing business in the industry, when you're dealing across cultures and across, you know, continents, you can't take anything for granted. You can't assume someone knows what you're talking about. I mean, you can boil that down to look at dragons. You know, we have a very different view of what a dragon looks like in here and in Europe versus what they have in Japan and China. So it's, it's crystal clear communication is always key, but at the same time, you just, you can't assume everybody knows what you're talking about just because you know what you're talking about. Well, and I'll add one more layer because what you say is so very important. It's um, also hearing culturally uh, what is offensive to one group of people and not to another. The, the importance of understanding in certain games what explosions and, and explosive words mean to one culture and not to another. So I do think where you want your game to be and for what audience is there, you have to really hear and listen and be able to communicate and relate to that particular culture. We had an issue with the word explosion in one game and what ammunition meant to one group of people to another in a, in a game really for children that was in space with explosions and words like black hole don't translate culturally from uh, one country to another. It's a fascinating, um, it's really, it's a fascinating exploration of communication uh, depending on the platform and the product you're trying to develop, but it's important. All right, so let's switch gears. Let's talk about outbound licensing. You know, so if I'm a developer and I've created, you know, or a publisher, we're using that term both ways today. When is my game ready to be licensed out? When is my IP ready for the rest of the world? Uh, it's really pretty straightforward. How many people love it? How many people know it? 
and an awful lot of retailers also. So many people are trying to jump on quick trends and, and see an influencer's um, importance online and across social media feeds. But ultimately, an awful lot of people will look to a t-shirt, an apparel test. It can be very quick and you can see immediately if people want to wear a brand, it uh, can often be a good sign that it can go across other platforms. So more and more licensees like to start with apparel as a sign before ultimately they're willing to go into, certainly um, the toy category takes an awfully long time to mold and it can be quite costly. So I think there are certain categories of merchandise that ultimately over time are take longer to approve and people will watch and wait for those product categories that will go over uh, much more quickly across retail channels in quick turn items like shirts and sometimes accessories. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, so is is that where they should initially start with, with something, you know, like just shirts or is there a lower barrier of entry section in there? Well, whatever the, it's funny, this, this is the most fun part, I think, of the business because you can ultimately have a television IP that ultimately becomes a game or a feature film IP and sometimes what began in one media is even stronger ultimately and goes to a wider audience uh, in another media. So I love seeing when one platform can translate the passion for a brand so beautifully. I, I look at Games Workshop and I see not that their tabletop wargaming IP isn't beloved by people playing tabletop wargaming and painting those miniatures. But look at what that IP has done in the game space. And now how they're translating it across merchandise. And I'm sure ultimately we're gonna see a feature film. So there are certain IPs that ultimately start in one format and then with a passionate audience move across uh, other lines of merchandise. That's one idea. I look at Angry Birds and that started as a mobile app and look at how, look at how it's been translated now across so many different merchandise categories and feature film and toy uh, and certainly apparel, et cetera. But yes, depending on where a brand starts and how it demonstrates that it has a passionate audience, I think very often other licensees that are looking for brands that are trending, um, uh, certainly retailers, online retailers, as well as uh, big box retailers, are looking for low-hanging fruit, low-cost ways to be able to test a brand and see that it can translate and has an audience that's interested in showing off their love for the brand. And often it's t-shirts that start. So I'll, 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 I have questions, but I'm going to let Indy get to the, the question from the people that matter, not necessarily me. Go ahead. Yeah, we've got, we've got some questions piling up here. Let's see the very next one. 
is Nightwolf is in the house. Yes. Uh, <laughs> let's see. How risky or unbalanced are contracts with niche or cult games for IP? Slay the Spire, Forced to Self-Published, Subnautica was original, luckily got YouTuber backing, Grim Fandango, it was a flop turned cult classic. So how risky or unbalanced are contracts with niche or cult games for IP? Um, I think um, uh, contracts are, uh, let's see how to put this. I, ultimately, I think you have to be wide-eyed going into any contract because most contracts are really set up for the worst to occur. So ultimately, um, I don't know that I often work on, um, let's see, what am I trying to say? I'm, I'm ultimately trying to say, plan for the worst is what a contract is meant to be. But plan for upside. So a niche game IP should build into a contract if the best should happen. So ultimately, royalty rates or rates and um, uh, numbers should reflect positive influences on either side. One side can't get all the benefit if good hard work and development is done. I'd like to give an example of, um, of a contract that starts ultimately a shoe manufacturer or a toy manufacturer tooling game developers. Uh, the, the beginning efforts of the product are costly. Development is costly. So taking a new product, you're passionate about an IP, but it's not a major feature film franchise. You're, you're going to give a lower number to start with for that IP, but you're absolutely willing to share in the spoils if all of this sort of starts to work. And then as time goes on, one side should not continue to take all of the benefit to the other side. Please tell me if this is making sense. And I can always um, talk later offline or have people reach me to go into specifics. But it's trying to be very generic and not give too many uh, specifics online is how I'm trying to answer these questions. And then the yeah, not naming names, but happy to share more details. What, what do we got next, Andy? Oh, we got another question? Okay. I was waiting to see. Let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Rich has got one. Rich, my question. What is the impact of COVID and the post-COVID world on IP licensing? And how does localization fit in? Uh, well. All the um, hard questions. Well, not necessarily. It just sort of depends. I have absolutely, we're having a really amazing time sort of trying to have a crystal ball and figure out what retailers are going to remain standing. Is it all going to be an e-commerce and uh, direct to consumer world for merchandise out there? Um, I don't think so. I think there's certainly always going to be retailers, but clearly they've been impacted as more and more people are less willing to walk into stores these days and 
you know, that's certainly I'm speaking everybody, by the way, from a very California centric location and um, a real respect for a virus out there and fear. And uh, ultimately, I think there's an awful lot of people doing more and more online. And I see a lot of really smart uh, licensors, retailers, and game developers working hard to pivot to making an online uh, communication work really well. And that takes localization and uh, relating very specifically, again, to those specific cultures who want games for them, who speak their language, and uh, and that goes into multiplayer games, to single player games, to merchandise on sale that relates to my friends in my city, in my language. So I think COVID and an understanding of how we're gonna move forward in a more and more digitally centric or friendly, digitally friendly world is gonna be really important to address. So Jay, don't hesitate to jump in and- I, but people see me run my mouth like every single week, you know, it's, it's one of those that I want, I want folks to hear, hear from you. Of course, yeah, I've got, I've got questions too, but um, what do, when I'm looking for a partner, depending on what vertical it is in, you know, and we've touched on this a little bit, but, but are there specific things that a developer or a publisher needs to be looking for in a licensing partner? Um, just in terms of uh, right now, um, I've always loved 360 brands. And when I say 360 brands, I always love focusing on those brands that have uh, a gaming bent, a live event bent, uh, a strong relationship with uh, merchandise potentially. I love it when you see brands that touch audiences in so many different ways. That can bring a lot of strength to uh, the kind of development vertical that you might be in and wanting to take advantage of. So um, sports obviously challenged in these COVID times, but people aren't gonna stop playing or watching sports. And so ultimately the fact that a game developer could translate a live event, a sporting event into a game that can that has audiences that go see it, that wanna listen to it, that watch sports commentaries or hosts talk about it. These are the kinds of brands that are very strong. Music, music, there's just not very many products or, um, or audiences that don't have a passion for a category of music. Whether you love country or you love rock and roll, it feels like that's an IP category that is relevant, where you're just licensing to put it in the background and music licensing can be challenging in and of itself, or the, the game you're developing or the merchandise that you are making features a specific band, but these are categories of IP that 
touch an awful lot of people. Uh, this is the best part of the licensing business, and that is finding the needle in the uh, IP haystack. What is what IP is right for articulating in a game or in merchandise? That's the best part of this. Matching technology, passion, audience, and how it can be. Uh, uh, broadcast to so many people all over the world, making all those things come together and deciding which IP is right for you. So you brought up a point that I want to I want to touch on. Yes, I mean music is universal. I mean it's 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 amazing how well that can integrate into the, especially games. I mean we saw the uh, crypt of the Nancer, crypt of the necromancer game to get licensed by Zelda. And so there you have literally a game licensing itself to another game. But when you are dealing with music and musicians and Hollywood as well, there's three things that are very, very different that I want you to give a little bit of a breakdown on. The difference between like the actual music, you know, the sound of everything, the IP that's associated with it, and then, especially in movies, the difference between licensing an IP, let's just say Top Gun, and licensing an IP with Tom Cruise in it. Oh, my goodness. You're not kidding. It all makes a difference. And, um, and it all costs. And um, there are, you know, the music industry, I'll start there, um, because I do a lot of work in the music industry. And I also work with an awful lot of licensing folks who specifically focus on music licensing because it can be so complex. And there are multiple sides to music licensing and it costs much less if you re-record a theme song and you don't necessarily use the original recording. But then there are some cases where you'd only want the original recording of a major musician singing that song as you knew it. You don't want a different version of it but it costs to have the sync and master rights um, uh, in the game along with a separate IP. And so I'm gonna go back and forth and say, it's the same thing when you want to take a movie license and you want all the actors that were in the movie, um, you want them in the game, or are you gonna take off and do a prequel or are you gonna take off and, take your movie license into a game interactive story component and you don't necessarily need the actors um, because they can be very costly. So it's really dependent on how you want to portray the license and what you need to make it very authentic and real, but uh, licenses do cost and each component can have to be and necessarily can be looked at separately and cost. Um, we were recently trying to license a very old IP, uh, a catalog IP for a particular feature film industry. Wait, and, oh, explain what a catalog IP is. Uh, catalog IP is 
uh, in the in the cough, not coffers is the wrong word, but it's in the back catalog. Uh, you mentioned Top Gun, and that's a, a now a very relevant and current IP for Paramount. But the original Top Gun, Grease, uh, um, uh, oh gosh, uh, so many back catalog titles for Paramount are not necessarily, they're 20 year old feature films. So they're not, they're not upcoming films that are going to be launched or sequels that are gonna be launched. They're the, the properties that people love from many, many years ago. Those are just need a passionate developer that wants to dust off uh, an old IP and it can be sometimes um, uh, uh, well-priced. They are much more affordable. Available. Yeah. Totally. Uh, so, I mean, to, to give an example to, for everyone out there, if, you know, we're looking at the, the different tiers, the different types of things that are going to cost you money in an IP, look at KISS. So if you wanted to just license KISS's music, but not their version if you wanted to have somebody do a cover of lick it up that that's one fee that that's going to be the most economical way of getting in there Absolutely. Now, if you want the track that kiss recorded that's different that's going to cost more and if you want to use gene and all the guys in makeup in your marketing that's where you're going to spend a ton of cash or how about the game is all about those guys. Yep. So you have right the, the, game, the game is for them and all of their music in it because it's not like it's just one person. An awful lot of different um, efforts go into the song. And so it's often a universal music or Sony music uh, property and then it's been recorded and there's um, a specific recording studio that has to be paid and then of course it's the artist and the writers of the song so there are just an awful lot of components that go into music licensing but in the same breath it can be so worthwhile when anybody that hears that music is instantly moved by that particular song. And that's what licensing ultimately is doing. It is just bringing in that largest audience possible because of passion for the IP. All right, so we've got about five or six more minutes left. If you've got questions, wherever you are, drop them in chat. Uh, I'm checking the Discord as well. Yeah, yeah, there's still one more question I'm going to oh. get to right here. It's a big one. It's a big one. I see creativity as an ongoing process. More time you give, the more you can do. The business side, yeah, look over at Jay, would include respecting <laughs> your partners, following deadlines, knowing there's a limited budget, et cetera. But what I've experienced is that the creatives forget about that and not respect deadlines and argue about how they weren't given creative freedom. Um, but would you work with creative with great ideas that are not delivered? Would you work with creatives that give great ideas? Um, and I would say as a rule, always, because I do feel like, and you're getting, I know I'm kind of the choir preaching here, but I'm just a huge believer in brands 
and the importance of brand and what they can bring to creative talent. And when both of those can uh, work together, it is just an amazing, it doesn't happen always. And I think uh, like so much in life, it's important to always work for perfection. Uh, perfection is kind of mighty hard to reach, but I think it's, I think it's worthwhile. Uh, continuing the effort is what I hope you're hearing. And I don't think that you should give up and be frustrated with either side either feeling like they're not being heard. I think it's all about communication. And I think when you get the right partners involved, I think it can make it all worthwhile. That's, and the creative side of the industry, it's gonna be like that on, on both sides, both on you know the IP side, especially if you're dealing with a, a television show or a movie, or you know we do a lot of work with comic books you're always going to have the creative side there. And then you got the creative side in the game as well. At the end of the day, yes, they are the passion that, that drives everything, but you know, they, they have to respect deadlines, you know, just like everybody else. I mean, I've had experience with this. I, you know, I've worked with a designer who I consider one of the best game designers that I've ever worked with. They couldn't hit a deadline. They couldn't hit their own deadline. And ultimately it caused, major problems. And so, you know, folks, it, it needs to be ingrained and it goes back to, you know, when you're first looking at that, the contract and the, you know, qualification of, of either the developer or the IP, whichever side you're, you're looking for, you know, it's a matter of, do you understand this? Is it laid out in the agreement? These are hard deadlines and they have to be respected. And, but I mean, trust me, I've been there too. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people that are extremely talented, but they just don't get deadlines. And on the licensor side, brands have an obligation to maintain um, how their assets are used and what audience they're reaching, they're going to be seen by, et cetera. So the brand holder is the keeper of their IP and they need to maintain that vigilance. And so that's important too. And again, I, I do think it, it ends up being up to the, quality and the caliber of the communications going on both sides and uh important but fun conversations everybody yeah there's uh there's a question right here really quick jay that you can probably answer from christopher how can we connect with jermaine i'd love to ask more questions <laughs> no go jermaine it's your email address <laughs> oh yes oh, yeah. oh i thought you were going to say go to the discord and you can uh, go ahead yeah but you can certainly reach me directly on my email. I, I do caveat. I get a lot of emails and I do hope to get to them quickly, but I can certainly give you Jermaine at playlifeco.com. And so one final question, and, and this is because I don't understand what it is either. Uh, Tony says the killer thing with music is MFN. Most favored nations. What is that? That is trying to secure, and it, it goes to car licenses in a car racing game, music licenses in a game that's going to have a lot of music in it. You offer one fixed price for everybody and take it or leave it.
Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business.